Over the next few weeks, we're going to, you see that Advent. Some people say, what the heck does Advent mean? Advent in simple street language is, it's the rival. It's the rival of Jesus. It's the rival of the Son of God and what that means for our life. So I want our theology, our understanding, our knowledge of Jesus to grow today. So today we're going to talk about our need for a Savior. Next week we'll talk about expectation, the prophecies of why people were even waiting for a Messiah. The third week we'll talk about the salvation of a mother because we got a lot of Catholics in here. We got a lot of us were baptized coming out of the womb because we got some Italian and Irish in us, so we had to get dunked in the Catholic Church. So we're going to talk about how Jesus was Mary's Savior. Then on Christmas Eve, I'll talk about the birth of Jesus. Then the following Sunday, we'll talk about the second advent, why we're looking forward to the return of Jesus. So it's going to be an awesome month of growing in our understanding and our affection for Jesus. I got to watch um, an interview with a man. He was nearing the end of his life. Um, He was in his late 80s. A man who had given so much to the evangelical words world so much to understand in the gospel his whole life he stayed celibate and studied the scriptures and preached the scriptures and um they asked him at the end of his life because he had given his life as a sacrifice to the church that it could grow that it could grow in his affection for jesus they asked him what makes you feel alive what makes you feel alive i there's something about asking an older person a question that you feel like you're going to get a richer and deeper answer right you ask a 14 year old what makes you feel alive that ain't going to be that deep you know I got Bieber fever. You know what I mean? Like, that isn't that deep. But when you want to ask someone who lived life, someone who's been through trials, someone who's been up and down, someone who's seen people, seen their loved ones moved on, and you ask them, what makes you feel alive? You want to hear that answer, especially if it's rooted in Christ and they have a relationship with Jesus. The first thing he says is, I feel the most alive when I'm worshiping with the children of God in God's house. I feel the most alive in public worship when I'm with God's children, God's family, and we're lifting our voices, we're hearing the word of God, and we're lifting our voices to exalt our Heavenly Father. I thought that was so powerful because if I'm honest with you guys, that's when I feel most alive. When I'm here with you guys, and we're living in the reality that there is a God who loved us, who sent his son, and I'm lifting up my voice with you guys, and those voices are reaching heaven, It says we're worshiping with the angels in heavenly places as they exalt God. I feel alive. And I thought that was such a powerful answer. Because so many times in this life we can feel we're walking around, we're breathing, but we don't feel alive. But when that relationship between God and man is realized, that's when life is felt in our bones. The second thing he said was, I feel alive when I'm with my friends. When I'm just with my friends just talking. Isn't there so much truth to that? Why is it some of the best stuff in your world where you just throw some food on the table, you're with your closest loved ones who can be yourself, right? You don't get to ask prim and proper like, man, I am. You know, you don't get to do any of that. You know me. I know you. You love me regardless. Let's be friends. Let's talk about life. Let's live. Let's figure out the problems of the world. Is that when you feel alive, right? There's something so life-giving about that. That was his second answer. I thought that was powerful. The relationship between us among community makes us feel alive because we're not meant to be isolated. We're meant to be among each other, forming friendships, being brothers and sisters, enjoying life together, walking through this journey together. And finally, he said, 
And he said this was rooted in something his father taught him. His father used to take him for walks. And his father used to say, make sure you open your eyes and you see of creation. Make sure you open your eyes and you see what's going on around you. And so what ended up happening, he became a bird watcher. I don't know if we have any bird watchers in here. I walked from the backyard, but I wouldn't call myself a bird watcher. And he said, observing creation, just seeing what God has done, seeing the order he has made, the system he has made, the beauty he has made, the wonder he has made, the relation between God's creation, man, and creation itself made him feel alive. And the reason I share those, all those things that are life-giving is because I want you to see the holiness and the importance of relationship. Because that is what makes you feel most alive. Starting with your relationship with God, secondly, your relationship with community, and your relationship with the land that he's all given us, creation. Now, we're going to go over our need to have that relationship restored today. You know, when our new kind of mission statement is, Restoration Road's mission is to restore people to God, community, and purpose. Because it's been broken through sin. And we're going to bring you through kind of the meta-narrative of how God created man. That relationship was broken through sin. And man continued to sin and break relationship. Not only between God, he didn't love his neighbor right. He hated his neighbor. He thought about himself. He went for power, money, fame, violence, all those kind of things that kept breaking relationship. And then what happened? Christ came. And he showed us a new way. And he gave us a new life. And he restored that relationship that was broken between God and man permanently. And so we're going to take a trip through that kind of redemptive history. But I want you to hear this. We needed a Savior. We need a Savior today. And we got that Savior in Jesus. So hear that. That's what the Advent is all about. Have your affections stirred for Jesus today. So when you sing, you sing a little bit louder. When you think, your heart is a little more humble. When you love your neighbor, you do it because God has loved you so deeply. Because that's what it is. No one we're changed, not when we say, man, I got to change, man, I got to change. When we put our eyes on the one who saved the world and our affections are turned to it, towards him and we love him and we exalt him and we worship him, you are changed in an instant. You start to love your neighbor better when your eyes are focused on Jesus. You don't even have to work on it because you become like what you worship. And we're made to do that. So I pray that you see Jesus high and lifted up today. Let's turn to Genesis 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some up to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. <clears throat> then the eyes of both were open, 
and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you were dust and, and dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to the guard, every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Something holy about reading the Word of God, isn't there? It like settles down the whole world. All the noise, all the nonsense. The reason I'm starting there is because I want you to see that there was a perfect relationship between God and man. That we were created in a loving relationship. And what's amazing, I would say, outside of the relationship between the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, The relationship between God and man is the strongest bond in all things, in the whole universe, in all of creation. The bond between us and God is the strongest bond outside of the Godhead. Is that unbelievable? When I was studying this week, that hit me. That hit me deep. That makes you realize how precious that bond is and why Christ gave his life for it. Think about God walking in the garden with man and loving them and communicating them and watching over them. He was their perfect father providing for them. And all they knew was their father, right? They knew that he cared for them and he loved them and he wanted the best for them and all these beautiful things. Imagine that unique relationship. That's why God created man, to love him, to exalt him, to worship him. That bond was deep. Think about the strongest bond that you have. It far exceeds that bond, the relationship between God and man. Then Satan, a fallen angelic creature, shows up on the scene. And he tempts man. And he says, 
Has God told you not to eat of this? Has God told you not to do this? If you eat this, you'll be like God. You don't have to worship God. And this is every broken relationship, many of them, has to do first with sin, and second, people want to take a role that's not theirs. People want to step in. If they're not the leader, they want to be the leader. If they're the parents and the children have to... Have you ever been in a situation when the children actually like the parents? Because it's a broken situation. Where the parents should be caring, teaching, watching over, guiding, protecting. Now because the parents have abdicated role, the relationship is broken. The children have to step in and be the parents in the situation. So broken relationships when someone has taken a role that is not theirs to take. And that's what he says to them. He says, you don't have to be a worshiper of God. You can be God. You decide what's good and evil. You decide what's best for your life. You make the decisions of what's holy and sin. And doesn't that happen in our culture today? What do people do with the word of God? No, I make the decision on what's holy. Not God. I decide what's right. And that's when brokenness and division and all those things come in. Adam and Eve give in to the temptation of the enemy. His strategy was to bring division between that relationship between God and man. And all of a sudden, brokenness enters the world, and it starts with a broken relationship between God and man. And that's deep, and that's heavy, and Adam fails. And there's a temptation in us right now to have beef with Adam, right? What's the deal with this? This brother eats the apple, and we've got to deal with all this? There's a temptation to blame Adam. But I would make a bet that if I threw any two of you in the garden, you would have ate that fruit up. Give me more, give me more. Because it happens in every one of your life almost every day, right? We get put in situations. You know you've been commanded not to do it. We know we've been commanded not to do it. God's forbidden that metaphorical tree. Give me more. You would have failed too if the world was on your shoulders. And we'll get to the beauty of the gospel when all that happens. So, I want you to start with that narrative of redemptive history where you see that, and theologians will call that the fall. And what the fall is, that's the fall of the relationship between God and man. So what do we need? We have this need because the relationship is broken. We need someone who can overcome the temptation of the enemy. Do you know that in Scripture Jesus is called the second Adam? So I want you to turn to Matthew 4. You can just look up here if you don't have your Bibles. I want to show you how you get down when you're tempted by the devil. I want to show you how to respond in temptation. I want you to see in operation how Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. If you could turn to Matthew 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 to you. (laughs) And I want you to think when you're hearing this text read, I want you to parallel it with the story of Adam and Eve and their temptation, their fall, and Jesus with his temptation and his victory. And what we want to talk about the implications of that. In Matthew 4, 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. 
But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on the hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus did what Adam should have done. And on a side note, for those who experience spiritual warfare, do you see how Jesus gets down here? He uses the word of God. He uses the word of God. You don't learn spiritual warfare from the 10th reign guy. You learn it from the champ. How did he do spiritual warfare? He used the word of God, and that would be powerful in your life. That's what Adam should have did in the garden. God told me not, it is written, it was said. God told me not to eat from this tree. Boom, done. But we needed someone to overcome the temptation of the enemy because I think I get it, amen, we've all fallen to the temptation of the enemy. I think we'd go 100% in here. And if not, I need to talk to you out of service and we need to talk about taking, you know, internal revenue of yourself. We've all fallen short. And then you look, even from Adam, and you go through the whole Old Testament, everyone's fallen. They're trying to be Savior. I can't do it. They can't be perfect in thought, attitude, and action before God. So they fall. They sin. It's broken. We need somebody who can overcome the enemy, and Jesus is that Savior we're looking for. It is so futile when we try to be the Savior of the world. It is so ridiculous. It really is. You're freed from that foolishness. I remember hearing a story from one of my old pastors. He said he was on a boat. It was a smaller boat, but a decent size, maybe 25-footer. And there were about 15 to 20 people on the boat. And something went wrong with the motor. And as they were kind of, I don't know exact details, but basically something was wrong with the boat. The anchor broke, and I think there was a rope that attached it to the anchor, and they started drifting away from the dock. They started the dock. They were supposed to be in dock, so everyone's like, hold on, this ain't right. The boat's broken, and we're drifting out to sea. The captain panics, jumps off the boat, and grabs the rope in the middle of the ocean. Everyone on the boat is like, this is ridiculous. I mean, the guy has a good heart, but you can't pull a boat. <laughs> right? It's a futile effort. He can't save this boat. That's how we are when we try to save ourselves, when we try to save the world. We're pulling a boat. People are like, you've got a good heart, but you're not pulling us in the shore. There is only one who can reconcile man and God to bring that bond, that holy bond back together. And it was Jesus. And that's why we exalt him this season and every day of our life. So I want us to see the similarities and the difference between Jesus and Adam. The first is the strategy. I want you guys to see this because this is always Satan's strategy. That's why it's called the accuser of the brethren. He wants to bring division between God and man, and he wants to be division among God's people. So we will accuse people <clears throat> and put thoughts in your head and cause you not to forgive people and all these kind of modes. That's what Satan does. 
His goal with both Adam and Jesus, here's the similarity, was to bring division in relationship. That was his goal. If he succeeded and caused Jesus, the Son of God, who was fully God and fully man, caused him to sin, there would be no salvation for us. Do you understand what was on the line there? And he knew that. And so he tried to twist and deceive and get in the fall so he could divide. That's a similarity, the strategy of the enemy. Secondly, he offers something that's so enticing. Isn't that enticing? You don't have to be a worshiper. You can be worshipped. You can be adored. You can be like God. That's what he asked to Adam. Then he says to Jesus, he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. I'll give them all to you. Because Satan is called the prince, principality of this world world, not of all things, of the sinful systems and the empires made that dominion, violence and greed. He's called the prince of the power, the heir of those things. He says, if you bow down, what's he looking for? He's looking for Jesus' worship. He says, if you worship me, I'll give you all of this. How tempting is that? What was he saying to Jesus? You don't have to endure the cross to be the king of all of this. You don't have to endure the cross and lay down your life for the sins of the world to get all of this. See the enemy's tactics in there? That's the similarities. He's offering something that's very enticing. And third similarity is both of Adam's decisions and Jesus' decisions had major consequences on all of humanity. Let's talk about the differences and thank God for the differences. Adam's decision led to separation of God and man. In Adam's situation, the devil succeeded. In Jesus' decision, it led to reconciliation of God and man. And the devil was defeated. I like to say crushed. Secondly, difference. Adam gave into the temptation and wanted to take on the role as creator. That was not his to have, and this resulted in destruction. Jesus, although he was the creator, would not accept the kingdoms given to him by Satan but said, I will endure the cross, I will live a perfect life in thought, attitude, and action, I will die, I will rise again, and I will save all all humanity. He brought life. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, I want you to see this in the scriptures. It's not up there, I'll just read it. It's for, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's why he's called the second Adam, because he did it right. Adam, death, destruction, division between God and man. Jesus, life, forgiveness, the gospel, and reconciliation between God. That's why we worship. That's why we adore him, because he's the Savior who could overcome. You know, something horrible happened in my house. I got passed over as the fix-it guy. You know, you figure your children will come to you, Daddy, fix this, fix that. Now Papa gets consulted when everything gets broken. Dishwasher, there's problems. We've got to consult Papa, my father-in-law. Refrigerator, we've got to talk to Papa. A dog goes down, Papa can fix it. I'm like, that's my glory. That's my glory. But what happened was, I'm not very mechanically inclined. I got some gifts, others I just do not have. I just do not. Like, it doesn't, I don't care. I just don't care enough. So I got a few dolls bringing to me to test me as the fix-it guy. 
Heads fall off the dolls. You know the routine. I'd put the head back in over the neck. You understand me? And give the doll back like this. All the dolls looked like this, and they started realizing this is not the fix-it guy. A lower limb fell off. I tried to glue it when that didn't work. Electrical tape. That's the answer to everything. Electrical tape. The dolls would be walking around like the thing would be falling off. I got passed over as the fix-it guy. Now, let me give you another analogy that is true life. When Papa fixes something, it's like he's making a hydrogen bomb. You walk in, the kitchen table is cleared off. I'm not lying. There is a magnifying glass with like a stand on the table. He has a soldering kit out. The doll looks better than when you bought it at the store when you get it back from Papa. I swear to goodness, these are not tales. And the reason I tell you the story is because we try to fix our relationship between God and man. And it's never healthy and it's still broken. But when Jesus comes in, it's better than what it was. That's the amazing part of the gospel. That our relationship with God because of Jesus is actually better than in the garden. Because now Jesus is exalted above all names as the healer, as the savior of all the world, as our king and ruling king. He is exalted in place in this relationship that was meant before the foundation of the world. And he's made the relationship better than even it was. Can I get an amen on that? Is that unbelievable? He took something that was broken. You know our model, you broke, you fix it. You mess up your life, you better fix it. You made your bed, you better lie in it. God's model is you broke it, I'll fix it. Is that unbelievable? What kind of God is this? What kind of love is this? That we break the relationship and he fixes it. That we sin and he takes it. That we run away and he pursues. This is the God you serve. This is the Savior that we needed. There had to be a sacrifice made. We never want to forget that. We sin. We broke relationship. We've done it through generations. Our forefathers have done it and built up punishment. Who took that punishment? Because you can't, everyone knows in healthy relationships, you don't, you don't just say, okay, no big deal, let's do this. We know justice is this payment for crimes, this payment for sins. And this Savior that we needed took all the payment and punishment and our sin against God and our sin against each other and he made it right. He paid for it on the cross so that we could be imputed the righteousness of God and be a holy and pure relationship. That bond, that eternal bond is permanently put back together. It's fixed. Imagine our Jesus 33 years, perfectly loves his neighbor, perfectly honors God the Father. And you want to talk about temptation? None of us have endured what Jesus endured, and he still loved, and he still forgave, and he still prayed for his enemy. That is powerful. That is beautiful. That's why we rejoice. In Hebrew story, they don't tell story like in Western civilization. See, we tell stories like this, beginning, middle, end. When the people of God, the way they told the story, the way the Bible's even written is the same. In the beginning, man broke relationship with God. Man continued to sin. In the middle, Jesus comes back, lays down his life, perfect life, perfect death, perfect uh, 
resurrection to restore the relationship between God and man, then what does he do? He brings it back to the beginning. And man is in perfect relationship with God again. And that's what I want you guys to hear today. The story that God is telling with all of us. That we needed a savior to restore the relationship between God and man. And Jesus is that savior. And now we get to eternally, for all those who believe in his holy name, eternally be in relation with God. Amen.